0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the Horrid Halls of Academia. I'm Alex West with
1: Andrea Subasati.
0: And we are here back in the Rue Morgue Vault after our amazing trip to Salem, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But we are back for the most sacred time of year. It is October. It is Halloween. It's always really busy for us around Halloween, but God damn it, do I work to enjoy it. And what better way to enjoy it than doing more work?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. We had a double podcast month, so to speak. I guess this kind of makes up for the month off that we took in August. We did record our episode on American Psycho that we did live in Salem, and that will drop in the foreseeable future. We're not saying exactly when, but... We are still going to give this episode its full due, and it's due a lot, man. This is a big one. We always go big in October, and today we are going to be covering the first three films of George A. Romero's Dead series, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead.
0: These films are, I would consider them foundational horror texts they succeed in some ways, they maybe don't succeed as much in other ways to me, but you cannot ignore their importance. They are hugely influential, not just in horror, but just in zombie lore. And if you look at the kind of last 10-15 years, where zombies have gotten to in popular culture, you know, it's huge, you know, everything from The Walking Dead to zombie walks, all of this, you know, it wouldn't exist if George A. Romero hadn't put these films together in the
1: way that he did. That's right. And these films are obviously very close to me for obvious reasons. If you're familiar with my background, I wrote my master's thesis on these three films. And this was really my gateway into bridging sociology and horror, bridging my two passions. And that's exactly why I am where I am today. So I wrote my master's thesis and I had it published into a book and I... I never had any plans to have it published into a book. You know, when you complete your master's thesis at Carleton University anyway, they give it to you in a nice hardcover bound book, which I was like, ooh, this is fancy. And then I moved to Toronto and George A. Romero famously immigrated to Toronto. He's an honorary Canadian and legally Canadian, or he was. And I actually got the chance to have him sign my hardcover thesis, which was a big day. And yeah, so when an academic publisher called Lambert Academic Publishing approached me to publish it, I thought, what the hell? What have I got to lose? If this gets into more hands, the more the merrier. It's an academic publisher and it's a really, it's a, it's a thesis. It's an academic piece. So zombies are getting more and more popular. They're getting more and more critical and analytical attention. So I figured there's classes popping up. Maybe this will wind up a textbook and I can make a little bit of money. But they published it as is and they're marketing it as a textbook, a really small, thin textbook at textbook prices. So the reason I don't market it and I don't read my book, pick up my book, because I don't really want you to spend that on this particular book. It's, it's got chapters in it that are just heavy on theory and sociology to satisfy certain criteria. Looking back, I, I should have rewritten it in a more reader-friendly manner and gone with a different publisher at a reasonable price point. And I regret that I didn't do that. I feel like it's kind of too late. There's been so much added to the conversation with regard to zombies and zombie lore since then that I, it would be back to the drawing board, essentially. So that's the story with me and my book. But um, And what year was that published? I, I don't know. I was worried you were going to ask that. No. It was around 2004? Ish, I remember that it coincided with the release of the Dawn of the Dead remake, because that was kind of my evidence that, you know, zombies are having a resurgence. They're having a renaissance. And God, back in 2004, it was barely anything. It was a zombie walk, but it was still very much a subculture. It wasn't nearly as mainstream. But what I was going for for the thesis is I was interested in the interplay between culture as it is lived and culture as it is depicted in movies. And I noticed that there were some influences that were obvious. For example, my parents thinking twice about taking a cruise after Titanic came out. But sometimes influences were unintended. Like I was in high school when American History X came out, and I guess you were too. And even though that film ends on a decidedly anti-racist note – there was a huge spike in the N-word being dropped in my high school just because the beginning of that film, they made it seem so badass.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like um when Fight Club came out and so many people were like, or so many... I would say maybe white men were like, let's, let's just start fucking fight clubs. Yeah. We'll get out of our rage and our aggression and like, damn the man. And, you know, the book and, and the movie are meant as a satire. And I don't know if they are as successful as say something like, as you will all hopefully hear very soon, American Psycho, where we talk about how that is such a deeply satirical film but it's it's hard when you when you create that crevice between intention and reception with audiences,
1: yeah, people pick and choose what messaging they want to receive from this text, and that's something that I've really pounded on about in this podcast that who cares what the director said? It's all about us. So I wanted to investigate this topic with regard to horror specifically because I felt like sociology wasn't giving cinema and especially horror enough credit. And to zombie movies specifically because it was having a renaissance, as I said before. So the first chapter of my book deals with the theoretical backdrop of audience reception theory. I also wrote a bit about how audiences could be politicized or driven to political action in response to cultural texts like movies. And I argued that cultural materialism was the best method for investigating this relationship. It's a huge topic that has probably changed a lot since I wrote it, but I was very, very fascinated by it. And I'll definitely pull some texts from my Thesis Bibliography and toss them into the course notes. But the second chapter goes into how the zombies in George Romero's films got Americanized, which is to say the differences between them and their original Haitian voodoo counterpart, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then subsequent chapters just lay out important themes in the first three movies. And that's what we're going to do in this episode, man. So if you've ever wanted to read my book, just listen to this instead. It's going to be so much better. It's got Alex.
0: Yay! Now, I think we should maybe start on that point you just brought up, Andrea, before we dive into each of these three films. This kind of transference from the Haitian voodoo zombie into the Americanized zombie as we now kind of know it. In my research and from what I know of this transference, a lot of the Haitian voodoo uh, zombie has to do with colonialism Mm -hmm. and the fear that the population could and was being enslaved and that death was not the way out. There was a way to come back and to keep being a slave. And that was horrific and traumatic and a real kind of almost like an urban legend.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very much the case. And... Zombies are substantially different in Romero's films than they are in original Haitian folklore. And if you were to ask George, and so many interviewers have, he'll be like, I don't fucking know. I just called them ghouls and they were just back from the dead and they were just evil. I don't fucking know. I don't think he had a strong grasp of Wade Davis's research in Haiti and like what zombification meant to Haitian populations. I think he was just kind of tapping into an anxiety that just happened to fit so perfectly with discourses of colonialism and racism and all the themes that come up in Night of the Living Dead and then get expounded upon in the next few films. And I think we should
0: mention who this person you just brought up is, Wade Davis, because I hadn't really heard of this person until you brought him up to me. Hmm. And in your book and in your lecture that I saw years ago now, They based uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow off of his book, right? That's
1: right. The Wes Craven flick. Mm -hmm. So he was an ethnobotanist in the 1980s, a Canadian ethnobotanist, actually, but he was uh, working out of Harvard and... Harvard was receiving reports of people rising from the grave in Haiti. And so he went over to investigate, thinking that there had to be a natural reason and probably a pharmaceutical reason that could be useful for anesthesia in the West. So he traveled over there and he's published two books on the subject, one of which is called Serpent in the Rainbow, which is very narrative. Like he's very much spinning a yarn and telling a story. That was published in 1985. And then there's Passage of Darkness, which is his ethnography. It is very ethnographic and that was
0: published what is ethnography
1: it is a study of a culture got it i guess yeah i wasn't ready for that but it's still it's very readable. And that's the read I recommend if you really want the whole enchilada. Wes Craven made Serpent in the Rainbow in 1988, which deviates from the text a lot. And if we ever did an episode on that, it, there's an interesting production history where he really wanted to be sympathetic To the Haitian population that they were representing in the film, which was also Wade Davis's, like, for him to have given Wes Craven his blessing in telling this story, he wanted it to be very sympathetic, and it didn't actually turn out that way. But that's a story for another episode. Basically, in Haiti, zombies are social outcasts. It's a punishment that's administered by the bokor or village witch doctor. Medically, it's tetrodotoxin, which you get from blowfish, and that is mixed with an irritant, something like ground glass, and also symbolic ingredients like human bones, and it's administered to the victim's front doorstep and absorbed through the soles of their feet. It results in a death-like paralysis, followed by a sort of catatonia. So that's, that's medically what zombies are. Zombies are real. This can happen to you. You look horrified.
0: The ground
1: glass. Yeah, right? I think that
0: gets me more than like the human bones or the blowfish poison. I just, you know, I feel like
1: Annie Lennox right now walking on broken glass. Now, culturally, the Haitians believed that the Bokor has captured their bon ange, which refers to their soul or their free will, and he keeps it captive in a jar. And that's a really important distinction is that for the Vaudun, the threat of being turned into a zombie was a social norm that kept them in line. They didn't fear zombies. Zombies were not monsters. Zombies were not a threat to them. It was a cautionary tale. It was an urban legend. They only feared becoming one. And this is obviously substantially different from the Americanized zombie who is an actual threat to anyone within arm's reach. And so in my thesis, I boiled down the difference between the Haitian zombies and the American zombies into three major traits. One of them was culpability, was the Haitians believed that if you were a zombie, it's because you deserved it, you fucked up somehow, you pissed the wrong person off. And this was a fate that you deserved. The second trait was contagion. In the West, we look at zombies and their bite is contagious. They bite somebody, they become a zombie too. And thirdly, there's the trait of cannibalism. They are eating each other. This is obviously a very racist discourse that's often applied to indigenous populations. So all three of these traits, culpability on a cultural scale, contagion, contaminating the master race, cannibalism, they all point to Western racist conceptions of the other built out of fear, which to me just makes it the perfect metaphor. And whether or not George Romero was onto that and then adopted that to make these hugely satirical and influential films, it's, it's just so beautiful that I want to believe it was all intentional.
0: Well, I think it's it's kind of like you were talking about with the poison that the um witch doctors would use, where you absorb it through the soles of your feet. Like, I think when, you know, the first film we're going to talk about, which was made in 1968, which was a huge time of social unrest in North America, you absorb these things. And you can say, no, 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 this doesn't affect me. But, you know, look look at where we are now in North America with Trump and social upheaval and people fighting on both sides of these arguments. And... I think even if you kind of think you're depoliticized to them, you're not. You're, you're internally or externally taking on certain things. And I think if you're an artist and a creative and you tell stories, you have to tell stories that are of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, different factors play into this and how things work out and how productions happen can change, but they're all products of What's changing and what's happening and who's coming out to auditions and who's not coming out to auditions. Right. And there are, you know, so many little things. Okay. I feel like we're basically almost talking about Night of the Living Dead. We're there. So.
1: Let's just go there.
0: Let's do it. Here it is. George A. Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead. Welcome
2: to a night of total terror. Hey! night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living, the living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. <laughs> dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror! Night... ...of the living dead.
0: Siblings Barbara and Johnny drive to rural Pennsylvania to pay their respects to their father's grave. While in the graveyard, they are attacked by ghouls, a.k.a. zombies. Johnny dies while Barbara flees to a nearby house with Ben, a man who saves her from another attack. They begin to barricade the house. A bickering couple and their daughter are also in the house, and the daughter is sick after being bitten by one of the undead. A teenage couple also takes refuge in the house. Tensions rise, and they all begin to bicker. Ben finds a TV which receives an emergency broadcast confirming the undead are returning and feasting on the flesh of the living. Scientists suspect it had something to do with a space probe which returned to Earth recently. After a failed escape plan, the zombies descend on the house killing everyone except Ben. The next morning, Ben is woken by a roving vigilante gang's gunfire. He goes to investigate the noise but is mistaken for a zombie and shot by the vigilantes. His corpse is then set on fire along with the other bodies of the
1: undead. That's pretty much it. That's, I mean, what else is there? It's so beautiful in its simplicity. It's not a complex tale. The characters aren't complex and yet they're so relatable. They're so recognizable. They're really almost archetypal. The fact that we've got Harry in a suit, the fact that we've got the teenagers being teenagers and then there's Ben and then there's Barbara, like all the pieces that are in play. You know who they are and you know what's up. And they're not necessarily behaving in ways that are out of their norm.
0: And even the little girl who's kept down in the cellar, uh, it always reminds me of that, you know, little girls should be seen and not heard mm. kind of thing. Like she's like, oh, there's all this fretting about the daughter. Mm-hmm. No, we're just here for our child. And, oh, she's just she's sick. It's fine.
3: Listen, I got a kid down there. She she can't possibly... I
2: couldn't bring her up here. She can't possibly take all the racket, those those things, smashing through the windows.
1: And she's become the iconic figure of the film, Is that silhouetted shot of her face has become the image of Night of the Living Dead. I actually have it tattooed on my leg. So as Alex mentioned before, the late 60s was a huge time of transition between hippie optimism to a growing sense of fatalism that cast a really dark cloud on the 1970s. Nuclear war was an everyday horror and promising progressive leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were getting shot. People were scared and with good reason because when people get scared, they also get really scary. They buy guns and accuse one another of being commies or zombies or whatever. They tighten immigration policies and stuff undesirables in ghettos. And these are all things to keep in mind when we're looking at a film like Night of the Living Dead.
0: And not only in terms of the internal civil unrest that was happening within America, there is unrest happening outside of its borders. The Vietnam War, uh, a lot of people have linked Vietnam War to this film, which, of course, as we kind of mentioned, Romero has denied any kind of deeper sociological or social implication, which if you guys are listening to this podcast, you know, we don't care about
1: that. No, we're not listening, George.
0: These films, and this film in particular, also has a huge debt to something we talked about actually this time last year, which is EC Comics, things like Tales from the Crypt, these kind of ghastly, ghoulish, pulpy comics, which had strange moralities, often with the monsters becoming the most sympathetic people. So they kind of ape on that universal monsters-esque theme. And Romero has talked about how influenced he was by those. And you, you kind of feel these throughout the films. And as we talked about the kind of Haitian history of the zombies, Romero has also talked about how indebted he is to Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, about kind of the last man on earth fighting against all these monsters, which are far more vampiric in nature than zombies, but that notion of society changing, and changing unwillingly, uh, at least for this kind of last man standing. So you have these feelings of unrest, and I think what's important is that Romero sets up... This notion where you have different groups of people all in this rural house, all trapped in there and they can't leave. So all they can do is fight. So one of the most important things to me when I watch Night of the Living Dead is the situation of this house. And it kind of comes into play in the next few films we're going to talk about. But the notion of urban versus rural, what struck a chord for me. And this was something I actually researched in a a paper I pulled from in my book, Films of the New French Extremity, when I talked about one of the films in there. And it's a paper by an academic named Kathleen A. Tobin. And it's called The Reduction of Urban Vulnerability. And it's a discussion about how military choices influence the suburbs and the suburbanization of culture in North America essentially, this kind of came out of the atomic age. And so in the 1950s, there was the Cold War, everyone was scared that they were going to get bombed by someone and the world was going to end. So the kind of military and the government used all of these facets of government housing to start pushing certain people, certain more affluent people, maybe, to these things called suburbs. Because if an atomic bomb hit New York, say, New York's gone. The five boroughs, gone. But outside of that, there are still populations. There are still people who can keep breeding. And maybe there's a salvageable generation. Now, this also kind of wound up feeding into the fear of other in urban areas, the kind of notion of violence and things that were going on and crime and drugs and blah, blah, blah. But it was always, to Tobin's point, kind of a military operation. And it was sold in such that the American public could think, oh, I'm making the best choice for my family. They're literally buying into the white picket fence dream because the military told them to. It's a really creepy, unsettling study about kind of mind control through this military operation that sold the American dream because they needed a population to potentially survive this atomic blast, which never happened. Mm. So to me, when I look at this film, you have people who should not shouldn't be there, you know, quote unquote, technically speaking, the family that should be occupying this kind of house is maybe Harry and his family. And I think it's interesting that Romero makes them really unhappy. Mm-hmm. The bickering, angry shittiness of their relationship is right at the forefront.
2: Mm-hmm. We'll see who's right. We'll see when they come begging me to let them in down here.
0: That's important, isn't it? What? To be right, everybody else to be wrong. What do you mean by that? And everyone else feels kind of like an interloper. And Harry is sure to make them feel that. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting dynamic that plays out between who is right and who is correct so to speak, like, there's a sense of narrative superiority and superiority in terms of this society, which is collapsing. And because society is collapsing, that means, you know, this kind of seat of power is up for grabs, right? So I think you start to see more internal struggle and some people siding with Ben, who is generally very calm, collected and wants to make the best choices for everyone.
1: Well, yeah, and I saw a lot of that when I was writing my thesis. In fact, when I was writing my thesis, I was really irritated by all the conversations about what to do if a zombie apocalypse happened. Here's a guide to what to do with the – here's the best weapons. Here's the best – here's where you go and what you do. And, And I was like, who cares? That is so beside the point. There is a lot of controversy about Would things have gone better if they had taken Harry's advice and barricaded the upper floor as opposed to the cellar? You're missing the fucking point. The point is they spent too much time arguing about it to actually do anything. And we have to talk about Ben's race. And we have to because George won't. George insists that the character of Ben wasn't written as a black man and that Dwayne Jones simply had the best audition, which is a lovely answer, a very PC answer, the answer that you want to give. But again, to me, that's like saying Da Vinci made the Mona Lisa's eyes brown because he was out of blue. Like, if you don't want to take credit for the genius of your films, go right ahead. But the fact remains that Ben's racial identification is central to the subversive elements of the film. Now, in my opinion, Ben can be read one of two ways. Again, depending on your personal reading of this text, you can say that he is playing outside of stereotype in the fact that he's soft spoken. He's very gentle at a time where black men were really taking charge of situations. It was a very radicalized figure. But it could also be argued that a black man is calmer in the face of violence because violence is the black man's reality. And indeed, he is the only one to lay any kind of forcible smackdown within the house he is the one who takes it there when it needs to go there because that is not the white collar harry type thing to do ultimately i tend to see the conflict between ben and harry as alpha male a versus alpha male b
0: i thought it was also interesting how the film uses family as currency and the sense that you know I'm Harry. I have a family. I have a daughter. I have a wife. This is why my opinion matters more. Yeah. I definitely got that sense kind of, it's so pervasive throughout the film. Whereas Ben, who's seemingly completely on his own, but making these choices, trying to keep people safe and, and help them and really just, in my opinion, making the best choices at any given moment with the information he has at hand is by Harry seen as less than because mm-hmm. he doesn't have those familial ties. And I like that ultimately the film, in, unless I think you're a monster, you you wind up sympathizing with Ben and you identify with Ben mm-hmm. because you're like, I mean, if I was ever in that situation, I hope I have half the wits that he does
1: right. in this film. Well, you're sure as shit not going to identify with anyone else. Barbara? Don't get me started, but do, because we're going to go there. But in the meantime, definitely, I totally agree with you. Harry's currency, his cultural capital, comes from what he's paid into the American dream. I'm a businessman with a wife and a daughter. I've bought into the heteronormative shit. I should survive. I should be in charge. I should be protected by the rest of you. Like, his cinematic lineage is Billy Zane
0: in Titanic trying to get off the Titanic.
1: Toads.
3: Please, I have a child! Please, I'm all she has in the world.
1: Getting back to Barbara a little bit, when I was writing this thesis, I had originally wanted to write my master's thesis on knitting, which was also having a resurgence at the time, and it was kind of a third-wave feminist reclaiming of domestic arts type thing. And so when I applied to do My master's, I was assigned a supervisor based on that proposed topic. I obviously switched topics. I got a different supervisor, and my supervisor was like the bad boy of the department. Like, he was publishing papers on the desensitization of oral sex among teenage populations, and so, like, he was – writing on blowjobs essentially so he was he was he was the fun guy that you could talk about anything to and so he took me on and he was really tough and he was really mean and i loved him and i hated him and we had a really interesting relationship but i made him watch these movies to know what i was talking about and when he watched night of the living dead he was like yeah i thought the the sexual tension between ben and barbara was really interesting and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about? And he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, how did you miss it when he's taking off her shoes? And I'm like, He's taking care of her, bro. Like, I didn't, and he's like, well, you have to consider the power dynamics between, like, a white woman and a black man. And and to give him credit, there, there is an interesting power differential there, because for the time, that was exactly the kind of anxiety that was tied up with contagion, which I was talking about before, was that, you know, women were the white population's weakness are white women. And if black men were to infiltrate that, then all is lost. But I really didn't get a sense of that in this film until he made me.
0: Well, it's interesting. One of the notes I have here in in my notebook is um, from Wes Craven in um, this really great book called Shock Value by Jason Zinneman, which is kind of a, a history of horror films around this time. And Wes Craven said that Night of the Living Dead was the first horror film that wasn't shackled to a sense of decorum mm. and so i guess i can see your supervisor's point if i really had to but i feel like this is people like you show your decency and your kindness or you don't yeah like i i read that kind of moment with ben and barbara like like you do he's just right. trying to make sure that She's comfortable. She could be okay in case something happens and he needs her. Yeah. yeah. Like there's something tactical and there's also something kind about it. Mm -hmm. I also just, I fucking, am so tired of any kind of pop culture relationship between a man and a woman being sexualized. Mm. Like calm down. We all have friends of the opposite sex. It's, it's time to move on.
1: Well, yeah. And when you're faced with the dead rising from the grave, I think getting laid is literally the last thing on your mind.
0: Yeah. Cause where are you going to get birth control?
1: Exactly. That's exactly where I was going with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Romero took a lot of heat for his weak female characterizations. That much is undisputed. But it was only when I took a look at Tom Savini's 1990 remake, which I believe actually has an anniversary today. I was on Facebook earlier and somebody was like 22 years ago or something this day. uh, 1990. no, that may or may not make sense. I don't know. I don't care. I'm not doing math right now. In Tom Savini's remake, he has Barbara as this really Sarah Connor badass, like she's terrified at first, but then she takes arms and she takes charge and she becomes really tough. And in watching that, and in finding that kind of problematic, I came around to the idea that the women in the original film are actually interesting caricatures of femininity, like between Barbara's total disconnection with reality, you find her seeking comfort in domesticity. You find her looking at things like a music box or like a doily and kind of fondling them and thinking back to a simpler time when that's all that was asked of women.
0: Yeah, I think there is something to be said from looking at Night of the Living Dead from 2017 back to when it was made. Mm -hmm. And I can see the portrayal of Barbara being much more problematic in the 60s and 70s, because you're into second wave feminism, you know, women and their allies are standing up for their rights. But I feel like now, I'm not angry at the portrayal of Barbara. Mm. There's a bit of honesty in there. And I'm so I feel like I'm so used to seeing the kind of like, badass gun-toting Sarah Connor, Kate Beckinsale and Underworld kind of like tough girl, which I love. I love that. Never get rid of them. But it's also a kind of interesting distinction from that mm-hmm. to just see a woman just like break. And yeah. she doesn't have to be strong. That's right. And I feel like so much of our, you know, media consumption today is about like, I'm I'm a woman. I'm gonna be so strong at the cost of everything internally. And this is a woman who fully gives in to this almost catatonic state. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not the best portrayal, but there's, there's a kind of honesty in it.
1: I think it's a valid reaction, whether it's a man or a woman, that people would just kind of, you know, fainting goat syndrome blackout.
0: Yep. So one of the books I just mentioned a little bit ago, uh, Shock Value by Jason Zinneman, which we will link to in the episode notes, really deals with a specific subset of horror films that came about from the late 60s through the 70s. And these are films like not only Night of the Living Dead, but Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, films like that. And this is generally considered part of the New Hollywood movement. So New Hollywood was something that was occurring within the studio system in America from the late 60s through the 70s. And not only do you have films like Easy Rider and Deliverance, which were challenging standard notions of what a story could be, what a mainstream story could be in film, but it also developed blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars. It's it's a history I am absolutely fascinated by. And oftentimes, most critics worth their salt will include Night of the Living Dead as a really important proponent of this movement. And, you know, I think on a base level, when we look at it, we can think about where horror was before. So horror, for large part, Uh, in the 1950s was kind of indebted to the atomic age you know uh, science gone wrong creature from the black lagoon the original fly all of these things about nature and science kind of taking hold in these kind of big goofy costumes and and in the same hand there was also the sense of the uh, European gothic so eastern European vampires hammer films that kind of thing the overwrought Vincent Price as horror film which are amazing amazing in their own right. But this was something very, very different. And the difference is, is that horror doesn't exist in something else. It doesn't exist to the scientists who fuck around with God knows what. It doesn't happen in castles in Transylvania. It's happening down the road from you. It is tangible. It is accessible. So even if someone's doing something far off, it's going to trickle down and affect you the audience. So this is where a lot of people kind of place the space probe fallout maybe having something to do with the undead rising is a kind of holdover from the 1950s atomic age horror.
2: Why are space experts being consulted about an earthbound emergency? Well, so far, all the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite you recall started back to earth but never got here that's the space vehicle which orbited venus and then was purposely destroyed by nasa when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it could that radiation be somehow responsible for the wholesale murders we're now suffering
0: but the point is, is that this notion is situated in the real and the tangible, and the horror comes from what is internalized within this house, what is spoken and not spoken between these people. That's why, you know, when you think about films like uh, Night of the Living Dead and how it relates to Rosemary's Baby and how it relates to The Exorcist, these aren't concepts that are foreign to us. They are terrifying and supernatural, but there is also something truly real about them.
1: hmm If you recall the beginning of Night of the Living Dead, there is an American flag very prominently placed there. This is a very American film. This is in your backyard. I feel like it bears mention this film was written by George A. Romero and John Russo, and they work together on this film, and they have kind of an interesting relationship. They parted ways creatively for their own legacy of sequels george obviously continued his dead series which is what we're talking about in this episode but john russo continued his living dead series which took a decidedly different turn Starting with Return of the Living Dead, which was his sequel to Night of the Living Dead, it's a lot more slapstick. It's really, really fun. It's very rock and roll. It's funny. It's raunchy. It's silly. A lot more is explained. It's exposure to this trioxin gas and this trioxin gas can turn into rain, which then can soak down into bodies lying in their graves so that they like come up through the ground and they Literally say to you, brains. I want brains. So obviously, big creative differences there. And Night of Living Dead was made on a very meager budget, and they didn't. Hang on to the rights, because who could have known that this little grainy black and white piece of shit film would become what it did? And so George and John didn't exactly get rich off of it, which is, in my opinion, the reason we have the anniversary edition, which features scenes that John Russo shot and then just kind of shoehorned in. And it's not good. Have you seen it? No, I didn't even know. about. OK, this. so, yeah, it's probably not even a big deal in the larger story of Night of the Living Dead, but it came out right around the time that I was working on my thesis. So I was like, oh, there's like there's new scenes. There's new scenes to Night of the Living Dead. I need to check this out. They are objectively terrible. And I was listening to the audio commentary when I was working on my thesis, and Russo was totally like, I anticipate a backlash from the fans, but all this extra work was done with the utmost respect and reverence for the original. It's like, you son of a bitch. You're hoping that this goes so well that you can maybe make a buck off of this amazing, amazing film that you made with someone else. Like, don't be a dick. And this is like a, a Star Wars versus Star Trek thing. I'm on George Romero's side. I prefer his films. I prefer his vision. I prefer his satire. They've made up. I've seen a lot of pictures of the two of them together. They're cool. They're chill. But Russo's anniversary sucks a bunch of ass. So basically what he did was he adds a scene at the beginning in which two young men are transporting a coffin containing a recently executed rapist murderer, to the graveyard. And when they get there, there's a man and a woman who are presumably friends and relatives of one of his victims perhaps. And then there's a clergyman present for the murderer's burial. And they're all like, "Oh, he doesn't deserve a prayer. He shouldn't have a proper burial." Uh, uh, uh. So, he doesn't have a proper burial and he becomes the first zombie to wander out and fuck with Barbara's brother. Oh, so, right. already in there there's kind of an implication of this zombie wasn't just anybody, it was a bad, bad person. And he wasn't buried properly, so maybe that's why he rose from the grave. Like, these are questions we don't want answered.
0: There's a weird, like, to me, having not seen it, just listening to your
1: description, there's just such a weird Christian bent to the whole thing. Oh, I'm just getting started. The Christian bent, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So later on in the film, the priest who conducts that kind of burial thing, Reverend Hicks, He gets bitten in the face by a zombie when he gets attacked and he's like citing scripture as if it's going to protect him. And the zombie bites his face and he winds up surviving. And then there's like a reporter at the very end who interviews him and he's like, oh, yeah, my faith in Christ totally saved me.
2: Sanctifying grace heals the body and the soul. I am living proof. But the scientists are all atheists and agnostics. When I didn't become one of those dead things, I was brought here to be studied. But what happened to me goes beyond the scope of their pitiful secular
1: rationalizations. And so in this teeny little scene, it completely undoes the film in that, A, it has this whole, if you're Christian, you're going to be okay. These are evil ghouls and satanic or something like that. And furthermore, it kind of, it, it posits that we got on top of the zombie apocalypse after the fact and life went on, which is so contrary to the nihilism of the original ending.
0: Yeah, like if you include those as canon, I I don't even know if I can talk about this film as new Hollywood. Mm. Like, I need I need to go lie down
1: now. Yeah, no, it's 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 terrible, and it's garbage, and I have a feeling it was a cash grab, and fuck, like, on on the one hand, I can't blame you. You made Night of the Living Dead and didn't make a penny off it. That super sucks, but for God's sake, leave it alone.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of that kind of stuff, I'm always interested to see, like, if I'm a really big fan or I'm really interested in a film, I want to know more about it. I want to see the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor. I want to see the stuff that was written but not shot. Like, Mm. it doesn't affect my view of the original film, but it it kind of fleshes out a different story to Mm -hmm. it. And so I think what you just described is interesting to extending the story of it, but its omission is what makes this film great.
1: Right. Well, it wasn't – it's not – An omission so much, like, it wasn't shot yet. You know what I mean? It was shot after the fact and shoehorned in. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Yeah. This is a film that uh, really needn't be fucked with. And I feel like in my days at Rue Morgue, I saw a news piece about somebody getting the rights to Night of the Living Dead somehow. I don't know the legalities about it, but somebody got it. And all of a sudden, Creepsville was making a bunch of Night of the Living Dead merchandise. And I'm not going to lie, I bought a whole bunch of it. But yeah, this was very much a really cheap little indie feature that because it was part of the public domain, it was shown everywhere. It was drive-in fodder, late night TV, it was shown all the time. And as a result, a lot of people saw it, and that's part of why it is so canon within horror. It's a foundational film for subversive 70s horror, and it's a foundational film, obviously, for both John Russo's subsequent body of work and George Romero's magnum opus, his Dead series. We're going to move on to Dawn of the Dead now, which came out in 1978, so that's a good full 10 years later, and... Dawn of the Dead was a sequel that George was thinking up, but he wasn't able to get domestic funding to make it, which is, again, hilarious to look back on now. It's like a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, the most famous horror film of all time. It wasn't at the time. And so he wasn't able to get domestic funding. But a certain Italian filmmaker called Dario Argento was a huge fan of Night of the Living Dead. So when he got wind of an upcoming sequel, he was eager to help and secured financing in exchange for international distribution rights. So Dawn of the Dead was written by Argento and Romero in Rome. And Argento also provided the soundtrack to the film. And the film has a European release that was retitled as Zombie and rescored with Italian prog rock band Goblin. So without further ado, let's move along to 1978's. Dawn of the Dead. In
2: 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Get <laughs> It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and
4: kill. They must be destroyed on sight. When
2: there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of the Dead.
1: Dawn of the Dead starts its narrative... Three weeks into the zombie onslaught and it begins in a chaotic TV studio where reporters and technicians are bustling about and on set two experts are arguing about what the zombies are and how to deal with them. One employee, Fran, learns that the TV station hasn't been updating its listings of closed rescue stations for fear that viewers will tune out and she joins many staff members walking out in disgust. Her boyfriend, Stephen, is a helicopter pilot, and he convinces her to meet him up on the roof, and they flee the building in the company's helicopter. Meanwhile, a military SWAT team is forcibly evacuating a decrepit apartment building due to reports that the residents are keeping zombies in the basement instead of destroying them. The residents, who are all racial minorities, fight back, turning the evacuation into a harrowing massacre. One SWAT member, Roger, befriends another named Peter, and Roger invites Peter to join him, meeting Stephen and Fran to flee in the helicopter. They land in a shopping mall, where they decide to make their sanctuary. As they work toward fortifying it and clearing it of zombies, Roger gets bitten and becomes ill. Still, the four are able to create a makeshift apartment in the mall, where they live comfortably for a little while, but Fran is revealed to be pregnant. Roger dies from his bite, and things start to look pretty grim. Before long, a group of nomad bikers attack the mall for supplies, resulting in a siege situation that has Stephen overrun by zombies in an elevator. Peter shoots him and joins Fran on the roof where they escape the mall towards an unknown fate. So Dawn of the Dead is obviously a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, and I think it's really effective in the way it picks up where Night of the Living Dead leaves off, which is to say that the problem is that people are not communicating. The experts in the TV station are discussing people aren't able to let go of their dead and allow them to be burned. People are too attached to their dead. People are too attached to their ways of life to adapt to this new way of life, and it's essentially destroying them.
0: I think it's a really interesting parallel to bring that up at the top for this discussion, because at the beginning of Night of the Living Dead, you have Johnny, who's kind of questioning the whole reason of, like, going to this graveyard, But what does Dawn of the Dead do if not confirm that we are creatures of habit, you know, not only in zombie form, but also in people form, when the survivors kind of get to the Monroe Mall, and they're like, yes, this is a place we can go. One of my favorite moments in the film is when they're kind of flying in on the helicopter, and they have to describe what a mall is. (laughs)
3: Shopping
0: center, one of those big indoor malls. And because it's 1978, malls are happening, but you might need to give people a bit of background. It's a really nice anachronism that just kind of is a bit of a throwback, but also a bit tongue in cheek, it feels
1: like. Yeah. I also like how Dawn of the Dead is really set in contrast to Night of the Living Dead's grainy black and white. Dawn is shown in bright, gaudy technicolor, which really draws attention to the ways that society has changed since the last film. Now, another big difference is that where Night of the Living Dead started in relative peace with Johnny and Barbara's drive through the countryside, Dawn of the Dead opens in a television studio in chaos. You've got a conflict of interest in terms of The studio owner being like, well, we have to keep the ratings up. It's like, no, man, you got to let go of that because people are dying. So already in this opening scene, the movie really introduces its main themes early on.
0: Well, yeah, and it's always the question of what do you hold on to when society falls apart? And obviously the news, television, those are, you know, mass ways of communication. You know, if it happened today, it would be social media or something like that. But it, it's a really harrowing experience to either stay and try to salvage this broadcast or to leave. hmm And then I think it's interesting that it cuts from this news station and goes to the projects where these things are happening, but they're not being broadcast. You wouldn't see that on television. Romero does a really interesting undermining in terms of, yes, the news broadcast needs to happen. Of course, you have a nice Romero cameo as a kind of news reporter or news director. And then all the stuff that is happening that doesn't get reported. And it is bleak. It is dark and it's fucking unsettling Mm -hmm. the big set piece of dawn of the dead is the mall it's iconic you kind of can't get away from it yes we have these moments at the beginning of the film which inform a lot of stuff about the ideology of the film but once you get to the mall these things kind of they almost fall away to a certain degree, and the mall becomes a way to solidify or denounce identities. One of my favorite moments in the scene is when Fran denounces being a den mother.
4: May
3: I say something? It's sure. So in areas of the north and west.
0: Sorry, you found out I'm pregnant because I don't want to be treated any differently than you treat each other.
4: Oh, hey, Fran, come on.
0: And I'm not going to be den mother for you it's guys. For moment. and I want to know what's going on. And I want to have something to say about
2: the plans.
0: There's four of us, okay? Fran, fair enough. The mall kind of has this, it's almost like the Overlook Hotel. It's just a mirror that's going to hold something up to you. And, you know, Fran not wanting to be the den mother and, you know, hearing the men discuss her pregnancy is really bizarre and chilling, but also kind of practical Mm -hmm. in a way, in a sense, you know, when we see these kind of montages of them, you know, roaming through the mall and getting stuff and indulging, they're reaffirming their own identities, you know. Getting a cool suit or going roller skating on your own or, you know, doing the things that you would do in normal life. But now there is no normal life. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that binds you to doing the things you do every day. Yet we retreat to those things because it's normalcy. It's routine. These are all things we need. These are not bad things. But we are so subservient to them. And I think Romero does a really good job of kind of playing with, yes, these are creature
1: comforts, but at what cost? That's right. He makes an overt point to say that these are creatures of habit. The fact that the zombies are even in the mall. They discuss this, the characters. Like, why are they here? Are they here for us? No, it's because it's what they know.
0: They're still here.
2: They're after us. They know we're still in here after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell
3: are they? They're us, that's all.
1: And Fran is such an interesting character. I love the fact that her pregnancy, it's a very political position. This is the 1970s. They discuss abortion. Peter essentially offers her an abortion, and it's noteworthy that there's still an element of choice involved. And while being pregnant is classically a position of vulnerability, for women, Fran is very much like, this isn't your problem. This isn't, we're not going to worry about repopulating the human race. That's for the next film to discuss. We're not going to worry about that. This is just how it is, and we'll deal with everything as it comes. Fran's pregnancy makes the guys extra protective of her, but she's not content to just be protected by them. And she insists on learning to use a gun and learning to fly the helicopter just in case everything happens to the others. And she's also the first person to see them all as a trap. Yeah, you would think a young woman would be happy to live in a mall and have all the material things she could ever want, but that montage that you were talking about before with the skating, you've got her in these luxurious furs and all this like, glamorous cosmetics and makeup she could ever want, and it's empty.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the push towards seeing the emptiness when the world ends that is really great
1: about this film. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about her refusing Stephen's proposal?
0: I felt pretty great about that. I have my own complicated relationship with marriage because my parents are still together and generally pretty happy, but they never got married. So I don't know that I've ever really seen a purpose in marriage. I understand that it's romantic and, you know, it can mean a lot to a lot of people and I would never want to take that away from anyone. But it, it feels like unless you're, you know, transferring a dowry of some live cattle, like what's the point? And I like that it's uh, this moment when Fran kind of takes the air out of the room and is like, "No, come on,
1: we can't, Stephen, not now. Wouldn't be real." Yeah, it's a very symbolic gesture. And I think I truly think that Stephen intends it to be a comfort to her. And the fact that she rejects that comfort, I am not interested in these false promises of forever and commitment in a situation where we're fighting for our lives one day to the next. Like, What difference does it make?
0: And what do these things
1: mean? The things that
0: we hold on to, you know, marriage started as essentially a woman as land transference. And the creepy thing about weddings to me nowadays have always been, again, and and I don't begrudge any wedding, but, you know, that this kind of notion of woman as property has been resold and repackaged to us as like, as a woman, this is the happiest day of your life. And this is what you want your boyfriend to do and Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And it feels not wrong, but it, it feels like we need to still understand what that is and Mm -hmm. and i like that you know this film puts to the forefront that it might actually not mean anything Mm -hmm. nothing means anything at this stage of where society is about to head
1: damn i need to open a beer to that because shit son there we go now getting to peter we've totally gotten past the whole race Being a elephant in the room situation that we had with Ben, Peter's racial identification is much more overt. Again, he's the one who's able to keep his head on straight in the military ghetto massacre. But when Fran tries getting to know him in the helicopter and he mentions that he's got two brothers, one's in jail and one's a pro ball player. And then she actually has to specify if she's referring to biological brothers or something else
3: real brothers you know real brothers or street brothers
4: Both.
0: that was the most awkward part for me
1: sometimes when i watch that scene i think that he's fucking with her yeah and i don't know if it's just because i've met the actor i have talked to him about that scene and he's got a very sometimes when i watch that scene i think he's just kind of like okay white woman here's what you want to hear It was also really interesting,
0: again, when we were at Salem Horror Fest, the first ever kind of Salem Horror Award went to Ken Forey, who plays Peter incredibly well. He's by far my favorite performance in the whole film. Mm -hmm. And to hear from Kevin Lynch, the festival director, about what Ken talked about and the notion of, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, standing our ground and that things aren't all that different – uh, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but that we're still in the middle of this understanding and that the film kind of forces Peter to take a back seat to certain things like he's the waiter at that dinner. He's, you know, doing all this other stuff, which puts him in a sense of servitude, mm-hmm. which I always found kind of weird. But the film kind of redeems itself at the end when he gets those hero moments
1: and he gets to survive, That's right. He also becomes the spiritual compass in the film in that he mentions that his granddaddy was familiar with voodoo and he is able to offer spiritual insight into what's happening. And I actually took a quote from his speech for the title of my thesis, When There's No More Room in Hell.
2: There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? guru granddad was a priest in trinidad used to tell us when there's no more room in hell the dead will walk here
1: So just as the idea that women being closer to nature is a sexist one, the idea that racial minorities are closer to superstition and religion is one that the film kind of toys with. It toys with it in the ghetto scene in the beginning in the apartment building where there's a priest who's just like, no, these are our dead. These are our family. These are our loved ones. And whatever science and rationality wants to say about surviving, we have to honor that or we lose what little humanity we have left.
0: There is a notion of honoring the dead and fearing the dead throughout all of these films. And again, that's a very surface analysis. But the notion that we are scared of our loved ones, and I mean that in two senses, because we're scared of losing them. And then we're now in this reality, even more scared of them coming back. And you see that with Stephen and Roger. Because they come back. And those are the heartbreaking moments of the film. When mm-hmm. you see them kind of lose their humanity and come back and attack their friends or loved ones. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really interesting dichotomy because you don't want to lose them. They're trying to make them feel better, be better, save them from themselves. But it's it doesn't work in the end.
1: That's right. And this is also the first film that kind of introduces what zombies are capable of, which is to say instinct. We already talked about how people are entering the mall out of force of habit. But when Stephen is attacked and turned into a zombie, he leads the zombies to their apartment because he is so desperate to get back to Fran. So this is what kind of introduces the idea that there is something going on in zombies muddled brains. There is instinct. There is sort of a carryover from their previous life.
0: And that really harkens back again to what I was mentioning with Night of the Living Dead and being heavily influenced by EC Comics and even Universal Horror with the monster or the dead having a semblance of humanity. And people were so scared of that. They were so scared of the quote-unquote other having some sense of soul or humanity. And I think, you know, through the 60s, 70s in particular, you saw this so pronounced. Mm -hmm. Um, People were so stereotyped and segregated, and it was so gross and murky that to kind of play with these two white men having this weird background and as monsters leading people back to, you know, their hideout, it starts to flip the coin on its head.
1: Now you've seen the remake, I assume. Yes. And? I enjoy the remake more than the original. That's fair. And I've, I've heard that left, right, and center. It's a more enjoyable film. It's definitely more exciting. The fact that they ramped up the zombies and that they can run. Uh, Zack Snyder did a really amazing job of updating the narrative in that malls are still around, but they're also a little different. And there are security guards who have an element of authority. I do think he did a great job. And it is, it's a more fun, exciting film. As for the subversive narrative punch, I think that point still goes to Romero. Yeah, no,
0: I would definitely agree with that. I think, you know, the point about consumerism and mindless consumerism in 1978 is far more important than it is in 2004. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Dawn of the Dead, the remake in 2004, is kind of an interesting anomaly because it takes all the best bits of what Zack Snyder could do as a director Limits his power so it had to be edited down and employed James Gunn who's gone on to since do like Guardians of the Galaxy and a lot of big fun stuff to make a big fun bloody horror action movie Mm -hmm. which really surprised me and this is me personally my problem with dawn of the dead is the pace of the original Mm. it is slow.
1: it is really slow and just when you think you've gotten its rhythm then the bikers show up and it's another bloodbath which i honestly feel like the biker attack was more of a Tom Savini showcase of what it was he could do at the time. Yeah. And, and more than feels, anything else.
0: It feels like such a pre, what's, what's the reverse of a callback? Dust till Dawn kind of feels like a callback mm-hmm. to that character in Dawn of the Dead. You know, so it's this kind of tongue in cheek thing. It's kind of interesting that we can go into the notion of what happens with consumerism and with the biker gangs show up and what it is not to share. But that's the point in the film where I feel like George Romero is taking a two-by-four and hitting me over the head with it.
1: It's true, yeah.
0: And, you know, I, again, in this book, Shock Value, which I reread parts of in prep for this podcast, um, Jason Zinneman interviews Romero. And Romero says that if people were going to put all of this onus on Night of the Living Dead, then I was sure as shit going to say some shit with Dawn of the Dead. Right. And so, yeah, you you had a lot to say, George, and you,
1: you said it all in two and a half hours. <laughs> so insofar as Dawn of the Dead is the most in-your-face, straightforward, yes, I am satire. Yes, I am trying to say something about society and the world that we live in. Yes, zombies are a big mirror that we're all holding ourselves to. We move on to the 1985 third installment in the series, which takes a bit of a different tack. Let's talk about Day of the Dead.
2: First, he created the most frightening film ever made. Then, he took his unique vision of terror one step further. Now, George A. Romero takes us out of the night, beyond the dawn. And into the darkest day of horror the world has ever known. Day of the dead.
3: There have to be survivors in Washington. Oh my. They have gosh. more sophisticated shelters than this one. Oh, sh- there have to be people in those shelters who know about us, who know where we are. With no radio content, they'll come looking for us. I said shut up.
2: They can be tricked into being good little girls and oh, boys.
3: Same way we were tricked into it. Oh, promise of some reward to come
2: what the fuck is wrong with you people they're dead they're fucking dead and you want to teach them tricks they have to be rewarded captain why else will they do what we want them to do i don't want them to do anything with dropo) A fucking lunatic! George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. The most eagerly awaited day in horror film history.
0: Zombies have now seemingly overrun everything, and a band of misfit soldiers and doctors reside in a military base. The doctors, led by Sarah, are hopeful for some kind of cure or explanation to this zombie academic. Dr. Logan has trained and worked with one of the captured zombies, naming him Bub, who seems to remember his human self and can adapt to commands. Captain Rhodes, however, thinks all zombies and anyone who is subordinate to him should be wiped out. Rhodes becomes enraged when he finds out that Logan has been feeding the flesh of his deceased soldiers to Bub as a reward, and Rhodes then sees fit to gun down Logan. Rhodes then locks Sarah and her remaining allies in the zombie pit, where all the captive zombies are kept. Bub then breaks free and discovers Logan's body, becomes sad, and then becomes angry. The zombies break free and kill the remaining soldiers, with Bub delivering the fatal gunshot to Rhodes. Sarah and the remaining survivors escape by helicopter, flying to safety on a deserted island. So Day of the Dead is really different in terms of tone and subject matter from its predecessors. It has this machismo quality, which is kind of like low simmering in the background of the other films and then start screeching to the forefront in this film
1: yeah if you had a problem with dawn of the dead's pace day of the dead is going to be a challenge for you and indeed among these three films it's probably the least popular nonetheless so because it came out in 1985 this was a time where It was a noteworthy decade for horror with the release of slasher heavyweights like Friday the 13th, Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street with all these things in cinemas and then you're like the latest in Romero's Dead series and it's Day of the Dead. It's this bleak, bunker, dramatic narrative. Day of the Dead obviously didn't resonate as strongly with audiences as the other films did. It's slower. It's more dialogue heavy. Although – I'd argue that it it still packs a bigger psychological punch than dawn. Maybe not so much as night. I would
0: agree with that. I feel like *Day of the Dead* is the payoff to Romero's ideology, inspiration in *I Am Legend*. And in *I Am Legend*, what I, what I find is so interesting about that story is so many people in the horror sci-fi genre cite that as an inspiration. And great, it's a it's a great piece of writing. The thing is, is it's about this guy who then learns that he's actually the last of his own race and that people have evolved beyond him. This monstrous entity that he fears is actually the next stage in evolution. And he, in being the last human, seemingly is the legend. So that's where you get the I am legend title from. Sorry, spoilers for I am legend written in like 1954. Yeah, no, you're good. (laughs) I feel like you get it the most clearly, this inspiration in Day of the Dead with Bub. And Bub, you know, whether you like the film or love the film or hate the film, it's such an iconic character and such an iconic performance. There is so much pathos in Bub that it's hard to ignore him. And you know, I think that's where you see the beginnings of that next step of evolution. And you have these people who are trapped in this military bunker, fighting with each other, hitting each other, saying, abhorrent things to each other and behind their backs. And then you have Bub, who's just figuring out how to live Mm -hmm. and figuring out how to empathize. And it's, you know, those first kind of primordial steps towards being their own people. And I, I think what is particularly interesting about I Am Legend, especially in the case of these original Romero trilogy, is that, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know they made I Am Legend into a big budget Hollywood blockbuster with Will Smith in the early Mid-2000s. And really, to me, the only thing notable about that film is how they changed the ending. Mm. They shot an ending which was basically like Will Smith's character kind of realizes the same shit the guy realizes in the book, goes, fuck, okay, these, these things are people and they have feelings and, and maybe this is time for humanity to die. Like mm. this complex, nihilistic, but hopeful ending. But, Hollywood hated that. The test audiences hated that because that's not life-affirming. So they reshot this huge life-affirming ending where they, like, wipe out the vampire things. And he's, like, the good guy in the end. And it's like, wow, you guys missed the point and then blew up the point behind you. (laughs) And so I think, you know, despite, you know, whatever problems you have with Day of the Dead, and I certainly have those problems. I mean, it's a slow pace. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's a bit of a slog sometimes. But – It sticks to its guns. It sticks to the gun that Bub holds in his hand. Mm -hmm. It it believes in its ideology. And I think whether you like these films, love these films, hate these films, they are so true to themselves. Right, And, And I think you see that, you know, when you get to the end of the trilogy and when you get to Day of the Dead.
1: Yeah. I also like the way that Day of the Dead picks up where Dawn of the Dead left off, which is to say that the turf war on the surface is over and the zombies have won. There's some very powerful imagery of, you know, just uh, towns in ruin, like ghost towns with tumbleweeds of newspapers flying by saying the dead walk and they fucking took it and I think the seeds that the character of Fran planted in Dawn of the Dead when she's saying, you know, what is survival and we need to confront that and decide if we really want to survive are really ruminated upon in Day of the Dead where they're in this bunker. Now, we're talking about the 80s now, and I mentioned that slashers were big. Everything was really colorful and garish and exciting. But the 80s also saw a great spread of neoliberal economics in the developed world, and technological toys were becoming increasingly common in most households. And I feel like the central conflict in this film is the idea of power And how power has shifted from I've got the guns, I've got the military, I've got the might as represented by Rhodes, and I've got the intelligence, I've got the gadgets, I've got the science as demonstrated by Dr. Logan. And I feel like these opposing forces are perfectly and problematically represented in their respective heads in this film where neither option is good Because neither option is considering the ethics of their position. And that's kind of where the character of Sarah comes in. And I also think it's really interesting how all the characters in this film, they represent institutions. They represent jobs and functions within society. I don't remember what Sarah does. Doctor? She's a doctor of some sort, isn't she? Yeah. I feel like she has a specific purpose. At some point, Rhodes even says to her, we're only keeping you alive because you have this purpose. And again, there's an implication there that the purpose is implicit in her gender. It becomes more explicit later in her conversation with Billy and John, which we're going to get to shortly. But- Ultimately, Billy and John, who are a helicopter pilot and a radio operator respectively, they're very much divorced from the power dynamic between Rhodes and Logan, but that's not to say they aren't crucially important. A radio operator and a helicopter pilot, they are at the bottom of the food chain, and yet practically, they are the most essential for survival.
0: Oh, yeah. It definitely kind of plays into a little bit, actually, what we were talking about last month with Cube and the notion of doctors and security Mm -hmm. and how those things can often be at odds. Because if you need to help someone who's sick, who's unwell, you need to understand a disease or a situation that puts you at odds with a security risk. Right. And what I thought was interesting about this, again, how we talked about how the mall in Dawn of the Dead allows the characters to cling to who or what they thought was important prior to these lives. Day of the Dead, the situation, it forces people to cling to their ideologies, and their ideologies are so different. And, you know, I, I don't think you really get a sense, or I never really got a sense of what the military's background was in this, you know, what kind of position did Captain Rhodes have? Was he actually a captain? And if you want to talk about an emblem of toxic masculinity, the power tripping that Rhodes does throughout the film is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like it's a symbol of impotence, so to speak, mm-hmm. because who does he have power to lord over? He cannot control zombies. He can kind of capture them and keep them there. But he cannot necessarily control anything outside of the people that he is trapped in this bunker with because he has guns and Mm -hmm. because he seemingly has allies. It's a really scary, dark portrayal of men in power.
1: Yeah, it is. I like how it posits that binary, but it doesn't really sit on either side of it. We are just kind of on the outside looking in, watching two kinds of power battle it out and both of them lose. I know people respond really strongly to Bub and his mimicry of human behavior. I think the fact that he's able to kill roads with a gun is symbolic. And again, you can extrapolate from that. He learned violence from human beings. Zombies are like, what are they? They're a brainstem, their appetite, their instinct personified. And says
0: at some point he thinks that Bub has a military background or had a military background. Right, yeah. It's also funny, because what's the uh, Stephen King book that Bub is reading? Salem's Lot. Right. And I was like, okay, we're just pandering now to the horror community.
1: That's okay.
0: I'm okay with it. And obviously Romero made Creepshow in what was it, 1982. So there's a nice callback to that, but I was like, okay, George.
1: So getting back to Billy and John, not only have they retreated from the bullshit politics of Rhodes and Logan, but they've actually created their own little oasis. It's kind of interesting how, you know, they've put up lights, they've put up imagery. They are the ones who have an idea of survival, and they have an idea that we need to keep our heads in the game. And that game is to visualize a future beyond all this, mm-hmm. where we're not fighting over scraps, we're rebuilding. It's a completely different mindset that they're purporting. Now, Billy is retreating into alcohol, largely, which, fine, And John, again, he's, I don't want to say the token black guy, but it does seem to occur throughout this trilogy that there is a black male character who not only has his head on straight, but also has a kind of spiritual, philosophical grasp of what's going on and is forward looking.
0: Yeah, they are kind of the antithesis to what Rhodes represents. And a really famous film critic who I think we've talked about on this podcast before, Robin Wood, talked about Day of the Dead a little bit, and how it takes the kind of conservative, quote unquote, from him, mindless entertainment of the 80s as kind of bombastic male toxic driven narrative and turns it on its head by making a film that kind of exists within this world, but chastises it and Mm. condemns it. And I I think that's probably the most successful thing to me about Day of the Dead Mm -hmm. is is showing the faults within that and showing that the alternatives, Mm -hmm. while imperfect, are far more desirable than Mm -hmm. anything going
1: on outside of it. Right. Well, rather than fight it or understand it, to survive it is something else entirely. And something that really strikes me about this film is when John and Sarah are having a long conversation about John's plan. He's like, look, we're going to get through this. We're going to get the fuck out of here. We're going to go to a nice island where A, we can be alone. B, we don't have to worry about temperature and climate and we'll fend for ourselves. And we'll start over and we'll repopulate the human race. And it really strikes me in that scene how how not creepy it is, you know, because Mm -hmm. he's speaking from such an idealistic standpoint. He's not like, basically, we're going to gangbang you and then our offspring are going to be all inbred. Like, it it didn't go there. It never got creepy. It was always so respectful of Sarah. Yeah,
0: it wasn't like a prequel to The Hills Have Eyes.
1: It could have been. It It really easily could have been. And it could have been everyone against Sarah and this strong female protagonist, you know, to fall in line with the one in the prior film. But that didn't happen.
0: And what I find really interesting about Sarah is the scene with her and her boyfriend, Miguel, where he becomes enraged. He hits her. She throws him out of her room.
3: You're full of shit, Sarah. You know that you're really full of shit. Screw it with you.
0: Get out. Just get out! I get the sense that she knows this isn't Miguel. It's this kind of very abusive abuser relationship. And, uh, I think this film really pushes people to their edges. It pushes mm-hmm. them to the outskirts of who they are. But everyday life does that. And I thought it was really bold and interesting that Romero included that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's the best portrayal of that. I think there are problematic elements to it. But I'm kind of glad it's in there because it shows a man dealing with
1: something in a really shitty way. And at the very least, Sarah stands up for herself. Again, all three of these movies are wonderful snapshots of their time. We're talking 60s, 70s, 80s. Chronologically, the portrayals of women add up. Because Sarah has a career, she has a career that she cares about, she has a relationship that she cares about, but she's not afraid to pull the plug when shit hits the fan. And insofar as she's being harassed by men around her who feel superior to her, either because they outrank her or because they have dicks and they think that that gives them some kind of authority, the fact that she has to mediate that ground is something that's really prescient for the time.
0: Well, I think the best scene of the film is when Sarah refuses to sit down at the meeting. (laughs) I said we ain't finished here, lady.
3: Sit down.
2: Sit down or so help me God, I'll have you shot
0: that scene has the most tension because it involves so many other people and it forces all of the characters to take a side. Mm -hmm. And it's relatively early on in the film. So then you kind of see the break. I think it's really beautifully set up and it's a simple thing, but then you see and you feel and you hear the tension of what these little things mean. That's right. It's a really smart, bold move. and, And I can't think... Really, of another scene, especially in horror cinema, that would dedicate that much time to a scene like that. Yeah. And it sets so much up.
1: Right. So we are treating this film as the bookend of the trilogy that we want to discuss. It's where I chose to end my analysis for the purposes of my thesis – But again, like I said, I think these three films, they stand alone, but they work really well together as a trilogy. But that's not to say that George Romero didn't continue the series. He did. Land of the Dead came out in 2005. And again, this is kind of a throwback to Dawn of the Dead, where it's really hitting you over the head with really obvious metaphors, so obvious that they're kind of painful. There's colorful characters who are funny, there's comedy relief, there's sexual tension. I feel like it's the most Hollywood of the bunch. The big redeeming factor for me is Ozzie Argento. I think the fact that she's in there symbolically, just as Argento kin, and she's amazing. I love what career she's had in film. No thanks to... Weinstein, wow, I didn't expect to take it there, but oh, there it is. we're there,
0: we're there now this is this is the new reality, yeah, I actually have not seen any of them beyond day of the dead okay i heard that they weren't worth it from various sources and i i kind of feel like the original trilogy which i'm with again is foundational text it's not something i return to a lot as a horror fan Mm. when i take off my journalist writer podcaster hat it's not something i would go for and watch right so all that to say that i actually haven't seen these
1: i didn't see them all either and like yeah, I know, I know. Just because I, they they started disappointing me, they started feeling contrived and they started feeling Hollywood and they were kind of bumming me out. I did see Land of the Dead. I did see Diary of the Dead, which was 2007 and it kind of took a found footage conceit. And it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses, but nothing like these first 3. Then there's Survival of the Dead from 2009. I have not seen and there's more to come believe it or not Road of the Dead is planned for 2018 and Matt Berman is set to direct I don't know who the fuck that is but it's a script that he claims to have co-written with Romero okay who knows and then there's something called Origins that I found in my research which is a prequel story in production that was written and directed by G. Cameron Romero George's son what? Now, you know how I feel about keeping franchises in the family. I took a little bit of flack for what I said about – who was it?
0: Max Landis. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there are nicely more articles about him being an asshole coming out, so I feel vindicated.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. But there's plenty. Plenty more meat on a zombie's decomposing bones than you would think. I remember after writing this thesis, I was like, what could they possibly do now? How could they make it interesting? But amazing zombie movies have come out since then. I'd like to list them, and I wish I had uh, in advance. Well, I mean, obviously around the same time as you were writing your thesis, there was 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later is magnificent. Yes, I recently rewatched it. Holy shit, is it amazing and brilliant. Wonderful. And, uh, Diminishing returns with the sequels, such as it is, whatever. That first film is flawless.
0: And, uh, of course, another film we talked about on this podcast, Pontypool. Yes. Which is, pri- I think it's my favorite zombie film. I'll
1: call it a zombie film, sure. And, uh,
0: you know, and then, of course, The Walking Dead,
1: other shit. Train to Busan recently was Oh, yeah, that was so good. And that one was so after the curve that that was really when people were saying there is nothing left in zombie films. There is nothing left that could be interesting. And that one just came out and blew everyone away. I liked Dead Snow.
0: Yeah, I liked Dead Snow, too. There's also a trend, which I think they tried – it didn't really take off with that film Warm Bodies, which I believe was a young adult novel, like kind of a romantic – comedy thing about zombies. Of course, you have Zombieland, which I started about five times and never finished.
1: Did you watch any of iZombie? No. I feel like media kind of tried to look into zombiehood as individuals and how individuals who become zombies experience zombiehood and i think it's a product of individualism i think it's it's a product of our times and as such it should be recognized but i think the power of these three films and of zombie movies at large is that it's not about the zombies it's about the people who are mitigating the zombies and that's a theme that comes up in a lot of effective horror movies is that the monsters are just reflections of us and what it is we are capable of under that kind of duress.
0: I totally agree with everything you just said. Thanks, right. ma'am.
1: So we should also mention that George Romero has obviously directed a bunch of other stuff, uh, most notably maybe Martin. Monkey Shine. Uh-huh. <laughs> Creep Show. Can't not mention Creep Show. Other films? Other films. Whatever. He is part of a movement in film, I dare say, that doesn't really have a name yet. And it's something that kind of occurred to me when I was writing my editorial for the November-December issue of Rue Morgue where Toby Hooper had just passed. And George Romero passed toward the end of the summer. And it was something that was deeply felt by the horror community worldwide, obviously, but especially here in Toronto because he came here. We lose so many of our great filmmakers to the U.S., so for somebody to actually come to Toronto, shoot here, and be like, eh, fuck, this is more my speed, I'm staying. We embraced him. Toronto loved him very much. And when he passed, I was in between production cycles of the magazine. So I did get a lot of mail saying, you know, like, where's the big Romero retrospective? And it just didn't fit in, sadly. Like, you can't plan for stuff like this, but... In ruminating on Toby Hooper and talking about what he meant to the genre, I drew from John Bowen's column in that issue where he isolates Romero, Craven, Hooper, and Carpenter as part of a movement who really made horror films, made independent, highly creative and conceptual horror films that reflected a very tumultuous time in American history. And that's really... It's, it's the bedrock of where Alex and I are, so to speak, in terms of unpacking all these sociological and cultural elements in these films. Those four filmmakers are... They're indispensable.
0: And, you know, whether you like their films, don't like their films, fall somewhere in between, you kind of have to acknowledge them as a horror fan. If, if you love the genre, if you love film, if you're curious about why we tell the stories we tell, You have to look to those guys to be like, okay, all right, why are we doing this? That's
1: right, particularly now that three of the four of them are gone. And when George Romero passed... Who would have thought John Carpenter would have been the last one standing? Who would have thought he'd still be working?
0: Yeah, we're about to see him live in a couple weeks in this, like, music tour he's doing. Yeah, it's wild. I respect I will be very sad if and when he ever passes, but out of all of them...
1: Okay, we're going to leave that at that. But when George Romero passed, I was invited to a Facebook event that was a memorial for him at a cemetery. And I didn't attend because, fuck, I was working. You know, like, (laughs) remorg isn't going to make itself. I have a very busy day-to-day schedule. And I did not take the time to go because in my head I thought it was going to be a bunch of fans kind of – packed up around the gates of a cemetery that they wouldn't be allowed to enter, just kind of showing their support. And I knew other people from Rue Morgue who were going, and I didn't go. But to my surprise and amazement, I started hearing that it was not at all like what I expected. In fact, the Romero family opened the doors wide open to the fans, such that fans were able to enter the chapel, view the casket, see the... Bouquets and bouquets of flowers from everybody from Ken Forey to the Misfits. It was all out on display and Romero's family was there greeting everyone, embracing everyone, and really just embracing what George Romero was to this community. And I think George, of those four that we're talking about, he is the one that mobilized a community more so than anyone else because the zombies – Literally got people on their feet. Zombies are ubiquitous. They are huge, and he is the godfather of the zombie. So when he passed, for his family to really acknowledge that, I found it really moving, and I fucking wish I went.
0: I got a little teary-eyed when you were talking about oh,
1: that. Oh, don't.
0: No, it's, it's, um, you know, death is, as far as we know in this world, inevitable. And I think when we lose our heroes or people we respect or, or anything like that, it, it takes a bit of a toll on you. And the older I get, the more I feel like I have to acknowledge it. Because we're all getting closer to it. We're not getting further away from it. And, yeah, there's always some hope in Romero's films. He will always show you the darkest parts of humanity, but there's always that glimmer of light. And it's, it's powerful. And, you know, that's why we decided to talk about three of these films in October. Yeah. Our most sacred of months, That's as right. I
1: say again. I have my career to thank for these three films and for the ability to write on them. So we'll dedicate this episode to the memory of George Romero. May you rest in peace.
0: And the quick updates from us. Again, like we mentioned off the top, we had a great time at Salem Horror Fest. Make sure you're following them on social media because... Hopefully,
1: they're doing it again next year, and we had a great time, and it was amazing. I festival. would love to go back, and we met such wonderful people for ah. the listeners who came out and who hung out with us afterwards. If you guys are listening to this, it was so great to meet you. It was everything to meet you guys. It
0: was the best. It, you guys are all so lovely and funny and interesting, and ah, ah, my heart, it explodes.
1: So many warm fuzzies.
0: And again, the episode we recorded on American Psycho was super fun. I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. And uh, the recording did go well. So we've got the audio, we will be dropping it at some point in the foreseeable future, as Andrea said. So stay tuned for that.
1: In other news, I don't think we really have any more announcements other than the shirts have gone out and we've started to see them popping up on social media. Thank you so much for taking the time to take photos of them. We love seeing those out and about in the world. Big thank you to Hag Cult for the amazing artwork and for taking care of all that. We really appreciate the support.
0: And if for any reason you missed out on t-shirts this year, well... It's limited edition for you, baby. We hope to do them again next year. We'll see how that all works out. So keep listening to the episodes. Follow us on social media where we update and post all of that kind of info. So for next month, you know how we're always like, oh, my God, we wanted to do this episode for so long. That's like every episode. It's every fucking episode. This is not one of those episodes. It's not? Well, this was something that came up kind of out of the blue. Okay. This came up in the last couple months where I said that we should do an episode on this to Andrea and Andrea was like, oh, fuck yeah.
1: So we're going to do an episode on Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. You know, I hadn't considered it and maybe it's because I consider Tim Burton to be such a standalone genre. He kind of is his own genre. Like I don't consider Beetlejuice a horror film proper and – Perhaps it's just because of the age I was at when it came out, and it was kind of age-appropriate, but also incredibly dark and spooky while being safe and not quite a horror film. We're going to get into all that, but that film resides very deeply in my heart, and I think the same is true for Alex. I think the same is true for a lot of horror fans of our generation, so we're going to give it a spin.
0: Yeah, we're going to lose our heads over it. (laughs) That will be our November episode, so we hope you enjoy this episode. Again, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, rate, review us on iTunes, blah, 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 blah. I would shoot you in the head, Andrea, if you were a zombie. You would?
1: I would. I would, like, tie you up and experiment on you in the hopes of finding a cure, but also having a lot of fun in the process.
0: Oh, my God. Would you feed me the flesh of the men we hate?
1: Yeah! Good one! (gasps)
0: All right. That's it for another month. Happy October. Happy Halloween. We hope you have a safe, fun, scary time. And until next time,
1: office hours are closed.